On this episode, I'm in the room with Joe Rigney discussing how to enjoy the things God's made without worshiping them. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 12. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and on Twitter and Instagram at at ryanhughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. The goal of In the Room is simple. I want to bring you into the room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. Interesting conversations with interesting people about interesting subject matter. This week, I'm in the room with author Joe Rigney. He's the assistant professor of theology and Christian worldview at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he's just written a great new book called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. In our conversation, we discuss how to deal with what appear to be contradictions in the Bible, how to properly enjoy the things that God has made in a way that glorifies Him, and how to keep our enjoyment from becoming idolatry. This is a very tricky subject, so this book is a gift to any Christian serious about glorifying God by enjoying what He's made. I think you're going to find this very helpful, so come on in the room for my conversation with Joe Rigney. All right. Well, Joe, thanks so much for uh, coming on in the room. I uh, really appreciate it. Looking forward to talking to you about your new book, The Things of Earth. Uh, but I'd love to start just knowing a little bit more about your story. So for people who may not be familiar with you, where are you from originally? Yeah, I'm originally from uh, West Texas. I grew up in Midland, spent my whole life there up until college, and then uh, kind of grew up in an evangelical home. Uh, I got, became a Christian when I was about 12. Uh, I was baptized with my father, who kind of became a Christian around the same time. And uh, and then, you know, played high school football. And Yeah, everybody football. does in Midland, yeah. Texas, don't it, they? That's right, yes. Yeah. That's Friday Night Lights. That was yep. my life. Uh, and then uh, and then went off to Texas A&M University, where, uh, where I kind of, um, it's kind of where I first encountered uh, John Piper, you know, through books and, and sermons and such like that. And that was a really influential time for me. And I met my wife there. And, uh, and then since then, uh, we moved up to here in Minneapolis about 2005 to be a part of the, the Bethlehem Institute, what's now Bethlehem College and Seminary. So I went through the apprenticeship there and then took a job uh, in our undergrad programs, which were just then starting out. And for the last eight years or so, I've been uh, involved with the team that kind of oversees that college. Cool. Well, uh, the book's great, and there's a sense in which it feels to me like a necessary correction to a a common misunderstanding of this thing called Christian hedonism. And uh, so before we kind of jump into the book, I was wondering if you could just explain, there's still a good number of people that aren't familiar with the term Christian hedonism or the idea uh, or theological concept or whatever you consider it. So can you just explain a little bit about what exactly is Christian hedonism? Yeah, so Christian hedonism, it, it's a term that uh, John Piper coined, um, and the term's less important than the substance of it, and okay. the substance, I think, is deeply biblical, which um, summarized in this phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's what John's been preaching for the last 30-some-odd years, uh, everywhere he goes, writes lots of books about it. Um, but the central idea is that um, there is no competition between the human desire for happiness, which is universal. All men seek happiness. All of us want to be happy. There's no competition between that desire and God's desire to be glorified uh, in the world and in people. And so that the way, in fact, that we glorify God is by enjoying him above all other things. So he's our greatest joy. He's our greatest delight. When we do that, we glorify him. So those things meet perfectly together. Yeah. And so at the heart of Christian hedonism is the desire to live a Godward life. 
And in the book, you make a really helpful distinction between direct and indirect Godwardness. And I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about the difference between those two manifestations of that. Yeah, sure. So we all want to, you know, uh, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the question is, what's that actually look like? And basically what I was discovering in my own life is, you know, there I am. So, you know, you pray before the meal uh, and then you start eating. But if you really are thinking about, I want to live a Godward life, I want to drink my orange juice to the glory of God, you're wondering, like, should I be thinking about God as I sip or should I be listening to my friend who's telling me about, you know, his his new job? Right. And there's that tension, like, where should my immediate attention be focused? And so in the book, I argue that God designed us uh, as creatures that live in time. We exist in time. We never cease existing in time. He's eternal. He's outside of time, but we're in it. And that therefore experiencing everything all at once is an impossibility for us. Yeah. Uh, and so we experience things one thing after another. And so God designed us for, for rhythms. Uh, and so rhythms of what I call direct Godwardness, that, that would be things like prayer, uh, Bible study, worship, corporate worship, anything where your, your attention is focused particularly on God. And then there's what I call indirect Godwardness, which you might think of as uh, a God-haunted life. So it's where you're, you've anchored yourself in, in direct Godwardness, in, in the scriptures, in prayer, in worship, and then you live. You mow the lawn, you have your food, you hang out with your friends, you do your job. And while you do it, you're sort of carrying God into it. And, uh, and the real neat thing about that is, is that if you, if you do that, it, it, first it removes the guilt of not saying, you know, thank you after you, every bite of, you know, the chips and salsa. Right. Uh, you know, not like, you know, going into the, the third heaven every bite. Yeah, um, yeah. But but even more than that, by being attentive to the horizontal dimensions of where we live, uh, it actually creates categories for us when we go back to God, when we go back directly to Him. Our minds have been enlarged. Now I know what the sweetness of honey is because I was attentive to the honey. I, now I know what the sweetness of a child's laughter is or, or the greatness of a storm because I was actually paying attention in these uh, indirect Godward moments, and now I have more to praise Him for. Yeah. And so one of the things that Piper in particular, I think a phrase that he's used, he's talked a lot about um, kind of living in this wartime posture. And I think other people like Platt and Francis Chan have picked up on some of those themes. But uh, it, it seems like like some people have taken those to an extreme and uh, are arguing for what I've heard some people kind of call a poverty gospel. The idea that it's for some reason more holy to live with little than it would be with much or something like that. And I'm wondering, like, do you see that? And is your book in a sense kind of a counterpunch to that um, over extreme? Yeah. So um, earlier you mentioned, you know, kind of as a correction to a misunderstanding of Christian hedonism. I think that's a good way to put it. Another way to say it, but but if the accent's on, it's a correction of a misunderstanding, not a correction of Christian hedonism. Right. It's actually what I would say would be like a a furthering, a deepening, a pressing of Christian hedonism into the corners. And I think this on the wartime lifestyle questions where that really, really shows up well. Um, So, you know, my own life, I embraced wartime lifestyle head on in college um, it just, it made sense. It was, yeah, if our resources were given to us for the, for the sake of mission, then I want to use them for mission. What, mm-hmm. what, what are we here for? And so, you know, you live all kinds of cheap, you know, you have, you know, you're in college, you have eight roommates in a house that has like two bedrooms and you're saving money that way. And, and, uh, and of course you're a college student, you don't have any money anyway, Yeah, but, um, 
but that, that was kind of my mentality of, you know, go cheap, eat, eat the ramen noodles, you know, don't buy new clothes, don't buy new shoes, just, just go cheap. And I kind of looked down on people who I thought, yeah, you're spending a little bit more on some of these other things. Uh, and kind of what, you know, what marriage did actually, it was probably the biggest, biggest thing that did it was open my eyes both to how selective I applied that to myself. So, um, I wouldn't spend money on, you know, expensive clothes, but I bought a heck of a lot of books. Yeah. You know, my book budget was exempted from the wartime principle yeah. or, or it was sort of like, you know, no, no, uh, you know, or, you know, th- this book, this Jonathan Edwards book is wartime. Like it's for my holiness. It's for my sanctification. I'm trying to kill sin. So I got to buy all these books. And what, what kind of marriage did is, you know, that's a similar thing to what, um, having a, a well-kept home is for my wife, like a clean home, um, that's warm and hospitable and welcoming with candles burning in the corner. Like that increases her joy and her holiness, not just kind of in worldly things, but in God. Yeah. And, and it's also a service to others, right? People come into our house and it's not just like, you know, uh, folding chairs and, and a, and a uh, card table, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a nice place to come and you want to sit and linger and eat and, and things like that. And so I, I do think there's a deepening, uh, that I'm trying to accomplish, uh, a, maybe a broadening of how we apply that wartime principle. Um, and I, and I do think it's a real danger, at least in the circles I run in, I know that's the constant, a constant issue for folks is where that line is. I think it's good that we wrestle that way. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that and those guys are pushing that. But we want to be uh, three-dimensional thinkers, not very kind of narrow, myopic thinkers. So do you think that the message of of uh, like the Piper, the Platts, the Chans, do you think that, that, that their, their message has not really waded into the waters that you're wading into? Or has it been more a matter like I think – people, people who follow other people are notorious for going to lengths and extremes that the original pastor, preacher, teacher never went to themselves. So where, where do you see kind of the need for this deepening coming from? Is it, is it in the, the primary, uh, teachers themselves, or is it more just the way that it's manifested in the lives of those that are listening to the message? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's probably the latter, although so in other words, it's the followers that I'm really kind of talking to. I mean, in other words, I've, I've thought this way about the book. Uh, I want guys like John Piper and David Platt to kind of go nuts with the, the, the missionary call, the martyr call, the give it all away. The, the, I want them to go into places that are way too comfortable, and I want them to blow that up. But then I, I kind of would like to be that kind of second voice coming in after that moment to say, and here's how you fill that out in a way that doesn't oppress you with false guilt. Yeah. And so, um, so there is, you know, I've, I've, you know, we, I've had conversations with, uh, with pastor John about this. Um, and you know, the way that we kind of, we sometimes talk is, you know, we push on each other, you know, he mm-hmm. leans to one side and I kind of am trying to lean another way because I see the way he's leaning and I know the effects it had on my own, my own life. And so I'm trying to lean the other way. And, um, there's a way of doing that. I think that's healthy and that both there's a mutual respect and like, this is good. It frees us both to kind of be ourselves and to actually help more people so that we don't create errors only on one side or the other. Yeah. And so I want to talk about the the whole aestheticism thing a little bit, because I think out of a sincere desire to avoid anything resembling prosperity theology, um, some have slipped into aestheticism being self-discipline, you know, that results in avoiding all forms of indulgence, that type of thing. And I've I've seen this just even as a a pastor of my church, um, you know, young husbands 
I'll just use them because they're they're low hanging fruit. Easy. Young young husbands who um, love the wartime philosophy, love the Christian hedonism, love the Pipers and the Platts, who honestly are real crappy husbands yeah. <laughs> as a result of that. Which I just can't imagine. Yeah. I don't know Pastor John personally nor Platt, but I can't imagine that that's their motivation. Right. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk to me, to us, to them a little bit about why is this whole aestheticism thing such a problem? Because you do a good job of going, coming pretty strong to the whole against that in your book. Yeah. So I think, you know, the issue with the wartime um, that gets lost, and this is where it gets myopic, is wartime means strategic. That's what we say. Uh-huh. But then you got you to gotta drill into that. What does strategic mean? Strategic for what? Well, it's strategic for kingdom. It's strategic for Jesus. And what does Jesus care about? Well, Jesus cares about people. Yeah, that's which good. means that wartime life, like to live a wartime lifestyle, means to live a lifestyle that's oriented towards the needs and desires of other people, including the people that live in your house. Yep. Right? And so, one of the things I argue, I think that this is a biblical principle, is that um, our concern and responsibility for others and their needs, you know, starts in and works its way out, so that Paul can say, you know, a man who doesn't care for the needs of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. Yeah. So like, if you're not attending to the needs and, and I know that we, so we can talk about luxuries and when, when we start to have luxuries become needs, I think that's an important discussion. I'm glad that Platt Platt and Piper are hitting that hard. Um, but there's still a real, there ought to be a real sense of, I love to make those in my household happy. I love to meet their needs. That's what men, you're talking about husbands. That's what we're built for is to meet, is to meet needs. And, but it, it can't stop there. It has to work its way out. We need to care, not just for our own. If we just care for our own, well, we're no different than unbelievers, right? The unbelievers care for their families. Right. So do, we, do we care for the church? Do we care for not just our own church, but do we care for the needs of the poor who have nothing to give back to us? And then beyond that, to the unreached peoples of the world, do we care about missions? But it, it ought to start with, what are we exporting? Like, I want, um, so when Jesus says, um, you know, uh, you know, that even uh, evil, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, I just think it's it's appalling if we being Christians don't know how to give good gifts to our children. Yeah, totally. Right? Like that's just an awful, awful thing. And so, and, and it's not just, a, and sometimes in my circumstance, there was a period of time where I would give things like before we had kids, like to my wife, like give her a gift, but I do so with like a hitch. Okay. You know, like there'd be like a little guilt, like, yeah. I don't know if this is really a wartime purchase because, oh gosh, we could have used this for something else. And there's a hitch in the gift and the, people detect that. Like, you know, if, if you're giving something to someone and there's kind of this guilt that's motivating it, uh, that affects how, how it's received and it causes funny dislocations. And I've, I've just, I've experienced that. I've lived that. I see it in other people and I'm just trying, I'm trying to tackle it head on by saying it's good to image God to your wife by showing her how much you delight in her and want her to be happy. Yeah. And you can go off the rails. You can, I get it, but but that the impulse, I think, ought to start there, and then let's try to figure out where the boundaries are. But we got to have that impulse. Hey, it's me, Ryan, again. Sorry to interrupt, but I need your help. If we're going to make it as easy as possible for people to find these podcasts, we have to increase our visibility on iTunes. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave me a short review? It's that simple. Every review makes a huge impact. Keep spreading the word, and thanks for your support. Now back to the conversation. Uh, you talk about, you just mentioned imaging God and in the first chapter, first couple chapters, you really root so much of this in the Trinitarian nature of God. And, um, I'm, um, I love theology 
but I also like the, the Trinity makes my head hurt at the same sure. time. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could just flesh out a little bit about what, what does all this have to do with the Trinitarian nature of God? Cause my biggest fear is that someone would get lost in those first couple chapters and yep. like quit because there's so much good to be heard in the book. So explain that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you, uh, your biggest fear is mine too, is that people read the, the, the introduction and go, Oh, this sounds great. This is going to help me. And then they'll get into that Trinity chapter and just go cross-eyed and yeah. look down. Um, and so I'm hoping that people have enough, uh, perseverance, but the reason I did that was because, uh, before we can talk about the world as, um, created for the glory of God and to pull us further into God, we have to know what does that, what does that even mean? And so, uh, in, in the, in that opening chapter, I argue that the father, the son, and the Holy spirit are glorious. They share glory with each other. Jesus says, you know, um, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you. Like they share glory. The Father gives glory to the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. It's this shared Trinitarian glory. And the beauty of the gospel is that we human beings, we sinners, get invited in. Yeah. We get, we're made partakers of the divine nature and we're invited in to share in the knowledge of God and the love of God and the joy of God that the three members of the Godhead have eternally enjoyed. And that's the, I mean, that's the foundation of everything. That's why God made the world is so that he could invite us in so that he could extend himself out, pour himself out into us. And then once you get that, that's what the world's for. Then you start looking at sunsets and children and food and hobbies differently because you, you realize you live in a world that's filled with invitations there. That's where this is all supposed to take us is every God's compressed himself. He's, he's written his own, when he's spoken himself uh, into this world, revealing himself in the heavens and all these created goods so that we would then see him in it and then follow him, chase the sun, chase the beam back up to the sun and, uh, and find our deepest joy and delight. And so I, I start there because I think it's so important. Um, part of it, maybe even this, that, uh, you know, for years, I think when I'd hear the phrase, the glory of God and God does things to, uh, display his glory, I kind of had this image in my mind of like a fireworks display, Yeah, you know, it's like off in the distance. It's like, Oh, look, there's a fireworks display over there. And it was really some stuff with Jonathan Edwards and wrestling with the Trinity that made me think it's not like a fireworks display off in the distance. It's like, it's like a home cooked meal and you're invited to the table. That's good. You know, like it's relational. It's, it's, I want to know you as a person, not just have a big, you know, whiz bang off in the distance, but it's, it's deeply personal. It's, it's get invited. It's participatory. We get enveloped and swallowed up in this divine life, uh, even as creatures. And so I think that's a really huge thing for people to get. And I think it colors, uh, a lot of what else is in the book. Definitely. One of the things I really like is the way that your book wades into a significant scriptural tension. I think most of us are prone to want to release the tensions that are in the Bible. And so we pick, you know, we kind of either, or we, we pick which, which, which part of the tension that we're going to lean to, we pick a side of the fence, if you will. And so we have these places like, like Paul in Colossians three, three, which you talk about where he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But then the same guy inspired by the same Holy spirit in first Timothy four, four says for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So you wrote the book. My question is, which is it? Cause those sound like two very, very different messages. Yeah, right. Well, I think that Colossians text in particular, I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I, one of the things I was taught in seminary and that I now teach to students is that the problem texts of the Bible, the ones that feel like they're intention are gold mines 
for our souls. Like to get in there, to not That's just good. say, oh, it's a contradiction, but it's like, here's this one thing, here's another thing, let's get in and see what it means. And I think what I immediately got into with that Colossians text is that if you follow it out, you know, don't set your mind on the things of, uh, of earth, set your mind on things above. Well, he goes on in the next verse says, we'll put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness, all kinds of malice and envy, things like that. And so it's clear that by things of earth in that passage, he means sinful things. Because then the rest of the passage is all about, you know, be humble, be grateful. Like he uses gratitude language over and over and over again there. Uh, he comes back, uh, talks about lo- husbands loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, masters and slaves, and so employees, employers relating to each other well. And so it's like live a life that's that's set your mind on things above and you start reading what that looks like. And you're like, man, it seems like I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to the things below. Like yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be having to think about how do I love my wife? She's going to have to think about how to honor me. I'm going to, how do we parent our children? So they're not exasperated. How do I love those who are under, uh, who I'm in authority over in such a way that they don't feel oppressed. And so, uh, these songs and hymns and spiritual songs shows up in that passage. And so there's this real sense of like an earthiness to a heavenly minded life. Yeah. And that's where the thing kind of came together is when you, when you, when you get that everything created by God is good it's all meant to be received with thanksgiving because it's all meant to lead us deeper into knowledge of God, then you're not, you're not, um, to set your mind on something is to orient your life around it. And what Paul's saying is orient your life around Christ and then go nuts, like engage with this world that he's made because he made it because he wants you to enjoy it. So let's get a little bit maybe practical about that. If we're going to properly enjoy the things of, of earth and you do a great job talking about creation and culture. Both of those things are to be enjoyed. How do we do that in a way that honors God? Do you have uh, a recipe for that, some practical steps? How do, you, how do you encourage us to do that? Yeah, I think the first thing uh, is that it is important that we realize that God's ultimate in that question. That, that, um, that The question that Piper pushes everywhere he goes, that Platt talks about a lot in his stuff, um, where you take, um, take all the good things you have and put them on one side of the scale— and you take God and put him on the other side and you say, which is more valuable to me? Which is more precious? Which is highest? Which is the best? Which is supreme? The answer has to be God. Any other answer is idolatry. So we start there and, and, and you, you want to root that. You want to sing that. You want to love that. And then having done that, then I call that uh, in the book, I call that the comparative approach to God and his gifts. Having done the comparison, which I think is kind of a test for us, an idolatry test, having done that, now we bring them together and we say, what were the gifts made for? Why, why do they exist? So a real practical one that I, I spend a lot of time on in the book is this is great proverb in Proverbs 24, where Solomon says, eat honey because it's good and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. And the simple truth of that is you can't obey that second command to know that wisdom's like that unless you know what it's like. You have to actually eat honey because it's good. You have to obey the first command and that everything's like that. This is why Jesus is going to say to us, you know, um, consider the birds of the heavens. You're anxious, look at the birds. You're anxious, look at the flowers of the field. You're lazy, look at the ant. Like all of these, this world is filled with images of divine things. That's Edward's phrase pictures, parables of what God's like. And so our enjoyment of them, we really, we don't blow through those at 90 miles an hour, like, oh, let's hurry and get to God. It's let's linger. Let's think, let's wrestle. Let's, let's direct our attention to, 
to the things of to the things of earth and see how is it that if we consider the heavens, if we consider the ant, if we consider the honey and the pumpkin crunch cake and the warmth of the wool socks and the Dr. Pepper and the college football, how is it if we really soak ourselves in that for, for a time, then we have our hearts are bigger when we go to God. So how much of this do you think <clears throat> of enjoying the things of the earth to the glory of God? How much of this is really bound up in gratitude to God for them? Because it seems like even in 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, that seems to be what Paul's arguing for, is that we would receive these things with thanksgiving. So if you were, um, is it fair to, if we're going to kind of boil it down to the way that we do this, the way we enjoy these things in a God-honoring way is to be grateful to God for them? Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think it definitely has to start there because um, in, in Romans 1, Paul says there are these two fundamental sins that all of us, all of us are born with. Um, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Right. And, and there you see the two twins, right? So on the one hand, you've got the idolatry, don't, don't honor God as God, and then ingratitude. And those are, those are both fundamental sins. And I think it's the part of the tension that I think I'm pushing on is when idolatry becomes the only sin that we think is possible for us to commit, we can easily become well-intentioned but ungrateful people. Yeah. Right. So like God's saying here, I'm lavishing, I've given you this family. I've given you this food. I've given you this job. I've given you all of this stuff for your enjoyment. Um, because I want you to say, thank you. I want you to enjoy it and be grateful. And we're going, no, no, I, I don't want to commit idolatry. So I'm going to keep right. it all at arm's length. And I'm trying to say, no, no, receive it, receive it, receive it, and then chase it. Where's it taking you? Where's it, where's it going? And so, um, yeah, there, there's a fundamental, we are receivers. God gives life, breath, everything, everything comes from him. He's the father of lights. Yep. And therefore our first posture ought to be a grateful receiving. And, and on that, kind of on the back of that, if we don't enjoy creation and culture the way God intends, isn't there a sense in which we end up impeding worship rather than promoting it? Like, so if I, <clears throat> if I give my kids a gift, to enjoy my, my, my intention is for them to enjoy it. If they take it and they put it in the corner and they don't play with it, like I'm not fired up about that. Right. <laughs> uh, so isn't there a sense in which to not do what you're arguing for in the book really can, can in a major way impede our worship? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, um, you know, Lewis has some, some great stuff. I use Lewis a lot in the book. Uh -huh. So if you like, if you like C.S. Lewis, you'll like the book. Yeah. But, um, one of the things he talks about is the difference between gratitude and adoration but how they kind of, they flow together. Gratitude says, how good of God to give me this. Adoration takes it the next step and says, what kind of God is this who gives such good things? Yeah. And uh, let's, so there's, there's an element of, yeah, you, if, if you come, if I come at Christmas and I give my kid some Legos and he just kind of throws them across the room and isn't really, doesn't really care. I'm kind of like, oh man, I wish I could have got him something he wanted. Yeah. On the other hand, if he tears the box open, rips them out and starts going to town, I'm like, my, I'm smiling, even though he's not, I'm like, I'm not even in the room, you know, right. he's, he's into the gift for this moment. And I'm like, this is what I wanted. I wanted him to get into the gift. And then the, the beauty of it happens then when I get down on the floor with him and say, uh, let's play together, right? Yeah, let's, let's do this together. And so it's not like either throw it in the corner and just give me a hug and it's not just play with it and ignore me for the rest of the day. It's together. I've given this. Let's share, let's share joy together as we, as we do this. I think that's what God is doing all the time. Totally. <clears throat> and you, um, you talked about earlier how <clears throat> in this wartime philosophy, 
like you, you mentioned that for you, you looked down on people, maybe that spent money on things or in ways that you would not, but that your thing was like books. And I think everybody has that, you know, like we all have our preferential things that we, we tend to be very judgmental of people that would spend or live life in a way that we would not. And all the while we're sort of blind to our own thing. So what would be some ways that we can safeguard ourselves from, from that blindness in us? Yeah, um, I think you know Paul talks about being slow to judge when it comes to other people's preferences. You know, like in yeah. uh, Romans fourteen, you know, don't judge your brother. You know, if he some eat, some don't eat. Let's not make that an issue. Welcome one another. Um, I think that that ought to be where it starts. Is just a deep sense of we're going to welcome other people because Jesus has. And then uh, I think um, not not thinking in terms of kind of a zero sum game, where uh, if I enjoy this that necessarily means other people are going without. That's not the way God's built the world. That's bad economics. I think that Christians ought to learn a little bit more about economics personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think um, that's your, your going without is often not the means of increasing for other people. It's just um, Lewis has some great stuff on this uh, where he talks about the way that unselfishness replaced love as the cardinal virtue so that it became more about what am I going without as opposed to what am I doing to actively love other people? And I think that's a, that's a, can be an easy distortion in the war time is that you're just calculating how much am I saving, but it's not really about where's it going or who am I loving and, and, and so forth. And so I think that's, if you get yourself out of that mentality and you begin to say, um, maybe another thing would be, don't think merely in terms of dollars. Yeah. Right. Like wealth, uh, money is just a measurement of wealth. It's not really the wealth itself. Wealth is all the stuff money buys. Yeah. And that's where, and, and you might have a lot more of that than you actually think. You may have, you know, very little dollars in your pocket, but you've got time, you got talent, you got tre- you got skill, you got other ways that you can be generous and to think, how can I be a picture of God to others by being lavish? Um, that's going to, I think, impel more generosity than a sense of guilt at the fact that you, you bought a hamburger at lunch or something. Yeah. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> kind of in conclusion, I think that um, I'm super pro uh, the message of the book. I think it's a, it is a really important furthering of Christian hedonism for sure. But it is easy for these things to detonate on us. You know, our enjoyment can, you've mentioned idolatry, it can so quickly and so easily turn into idolatry. So yeah. h- how do we safeguard that? How, how, how do we safeguard going from, and I think the enemy is so good at that, you know, what can even start as a good thing can so quickly become a God thing and then it becomes idolatry. So how do we safeguard that? Yeah. So, um, the first thing is, is, you know, I'm mindful in the book. I had this in my head the whole time. How do I write this in such a way that I'm not giving license to health, wealth, prosperity, nonsense? You know, like I, I hate that stuff. I abominate it as much as anybody else. I think it's from the devil. Um, and so I didn't want people to feel an endorsement if that's where they're at. And so I've got these chapters at the end designed to, to really take, so I want deep foundation of creation reveals God, enjoy it as a gift from him because it leads you to God. And then, well, does that mean I can kind of sit on my big pile of wealth because I want to enjoy God more in it? Um, and it doesn't. So the, so the chapters on like generosity and self-denial are meant to say, um, so Paul, so here, here's a good example. In, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this great passage, it just landed on me huge in writing the book. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, Timothy, not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainties of riches, but on God. And that just sounds like that's straight up kind of Piper Platt, 
Bible, yep, yep. good stuff. Don't set your hope on rich. You're rich. Don't set your hope on riches. Set your hope on God. Mm-hmm. But then the very next thing Paul says is, set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Yeah. And I immediately think, boy, that doesn't sound like the first thing I'd want to say to rich people. Yeah. You know, like, hey, rich people, remember, don't set your hope on it, but remember that God richly provides you with everything for your enjoyment. So it's like, okay, I want, I want to be able to say that to rich people. But then the next step I think is crucial because the text goes on to say they should do good. They should be rich in good works. They should be generous and open-handed and ready to share so that they can lay up a foundation for what's truly life. And so there's this, this element of God's pouring out grace. We're receiving it gladly with gratitude, as we talked about a minute ago. We're chasing it back to him. And then we're plotting, how do we extend this to others? Like, how do we spread this? How do we share this? And if it never gets to that point, like if there's not the generous impulse in you, I'd say it's gone radically wrong and, and, and you're in the, the grip of idolatry. It's got you by the throat. And so one of the tests that I would say, is your joy in the gifts are you really treasuring God by enjoying his gifts? That's the subtitle. Treasuring God by, are you doing that? Well, how generous are you? Like, is your impulse to give until it hurts? Mm-hmm. Because you want to make other people happy in God by giving to them. And then the second one is how do you respond when God involuntarily removes it? Like, what, what happens when he takes the good thing away and he rips it out of your hand? Um, and that's true of, you know, the material stuff, but even relationships, you know, yeah. so... Um, in, in the course of writing this book, my father passed away after a long fight with Alzheimer's and it was awful to watch my dad die. It was yeah. horrific, but it, what it didn't, the, the thing that it did for me was I wanted to press into that pain and go, it, there's a great quote. I, f- I forget who said it, but it's in the book. Uh, it hurts just as much as it's worth. Yeah. And I remember wanting to like press into that and go like the reason it hurts so bad to watch my dad die is because he's so valuable. And why is he valuable? Because he's been this beautiful window into what God's like. He was at my baseball games. He loved to coach me. He loved, I got hugs and kisses from my dad. I knew my dad loved me. He showed me God and now he's leaving and it hurts as much as it's worth. And, uh, and so I think those are the ways that you, you gauge, is this love of something uh, idolatrous? Well, is it taking you to God? Is, it, is the trajectory to chase it back to the, the source? Are you generous and wanting to share? And then when God takes it away, do you curse him? Or do you say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So good. Well, uh, Joe, the book is The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. It's super, super helpful. And uh, want to just encourage people to push through the first chapter. Keep going. Don't, don't peter out there because <clears throat> there is just so much gold in it. So thanks, man, so much for your labor and writing it. It's really excellent. And thanks for being on In the Room. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It takes a lot of courage to wade into waters like this. This is a topic that can go south so easily in about a million different ways, but by God's grace, I really think Joe Rigney has been careful and done a great job providing clarity on an often misunderstood topic. If you haven't yet, I want to make sure that you go check out his book, The Things of Earth, because I think you'll really find it helpful. And don't forget you can connect with me online uh, on both Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley and also at the blog RyanHughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with two more episodes, the first of which will be episode number 13 in my conversation with Dr. David Murray. He's just written a new book called The Happy Christian about how we as Christians can live meaningful and optimistic lives in such a pessimistic culture. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.